welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists, Drs. Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Lauschus, and we're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. Note, the discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. And now, on with the show. The other thing I want to know, like, I, you, you presented two residents and then they presented their research to me. Their level, the research was disproportionate to their level, I thought, um, in a good yeah. way. And yeah. I wonder if that, like, jumpstarts the careers of them. And Allison, same thing. I, I don't know what the residency is like there, but how involved are residents in in prospective research? That's one thing I'm not seeing in the United States is the residents don't seem to be on the prospective trials? So the thing is, um, we take that as an opportunity, at least I do. Uh, All our residents who are doing what is called as MD, so they are actually very fresh. We do not have uh, a system like yours or even in the UK where you have to do an MRCP or medicine before coming on to oncology. They are really fresh after their MBBS and they're just newly minted doctors and they've come to this new world. And Uh, They have to do in their three or four years, they have to do what is called as their thesis, MD thesis. Uh, It can vary anywhere from a retrospective study to a quality of life study or to a prospective study, any of the, it's really varied there to do it over two to three years. And I've realized that uh, we do give that based on what we think their potential is, their caliber is. We do not uh, burden everybody with uh, writing up a prospective trial. I mean, many of them are retrospective and dosimetric studies. What you saw was just, uh, I think, uh, it, it's not common uh, that they are doing prospective trials. And of course, it's part of their thesis, but I'll be there to, uh, you know, handhold them or guide them through it. They're not doing it independently uh, by, uh, in, in, by any stretch of imagination. There's a whole system. Uh, and that's what actually I must thank my time at the Marsden. What I learned is, uh, uh, to create that system, I think it is so important. Uh, uh, it, it takes a long time to create that. And that's what I realized uh, in the UK. There's a system for everything and that system works. So uh, so it, it's uh, that's what I'm trying to create uh, here. Yeah, so similar to, to what Vidang said. So we have fellows that come and do research with us. They come for either a two-year MD or a three-year PhD. Um, and they the, my, the projects with my team, obviously, are all radiotherapy-based. And these guys are normally towards the end of their oncology training. So they might be like kind of 30 or something like that, or even um, a bit older if they've had kids and stuff. Um, and they come and do research. And the, the kind of problem with prostate research is that the you know, pace we set up in 2011, right? And it's just feeding out now. So as a if you're here for two or three years, you can't see one of those projects through. But pace I wrote as a, as a resident myself. So that was my first project. Um, and, you know, I've clung on to it and not let it go. <laughs> and I've been lucky enough to stay involved. So, um, but yeah. Yeah, our, our, um, our research fellows, as we call them, write up prospective studies, but they might just get it started and then someone else takes it over. So, um, yeah, it works really well as a system, I think, for us. That's remarkable and actually amazing and, and really cool that you were able to write that as a resident and see it through all the way to reporting. Um, that is theoretically possible in the U.S., but very, very unlikely just because all of the institutions are pretty siloed. And when you leave, it's you basically can't keep your study. There's, you have to make somebody else the PI and 
Um, yeah, that's because I never left, Matt. So I, I, I've hung around the Mars long enough that I've <laughs> been around to see the fruits of it all. So. Would, would that be true, though, that like are, are the UK hospitals, are they independent in terms of their research um, infrastructure or is it more of a cohesive system where you could actually be a PI of a study outside of the hospital where, um, where its home base might be, if that makes sense? Um, I'm not not sure if I totally get the question but you so you could I think what you're asking is whether we all move around a bit and everyone moves around a bit in the junior level but once you get to consultant there's very little movement so it seems in contrast to the US if you once in, in the UK if you've got a consultant job if you got to the end of the line you tend to stay there until you retire okay. so that you're kind of fixed but this, so the other quite part of the question was like if you are at Royal Marsden and you create a study um, yeah. is, does that study have a home base at that hospital or could you be the PI of that study working at a different hospital in the system was my question. Yeah, in general, the actual chief investigator is is stuck. So the chief investigator of PACE is in Nick, Nick Van Ass. So yeah. he stayed at the Marsden and the ICR. So the trial stays there. I just was hang- lucky enough to get a consultant job there after my residency and my research fellowships. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Uh, uh, so for our residents, when they do this uh, MD thesis, they have to submit it before their exam and they are marked, uh, a few marks are based on that as well. Uh, and most often, if it is reasonably well done, they are encouraged to write it up during their what we call senior residency. So after their their uh, qualification exam, they stick around for at least one year and most often two to three years. So they uh, most of them uh, write it up at that time. So when they, the maturity level is higher, they, they are able to understand actually what they have done. And, you know, uh, but they are not the PIs. Uh, we faculty are the PIs. They have just led it uh, on, on the ground and they write it up. That's why so many publications uh, come up from these theses. And I realized it's better to give a good question, even if it's a small prospective study, rather than just a retrospective study. But again, it depends on the student. So the, for the Americans, uh, Matt, Anna, Hamachi, you both, you all three have, you know, you guys are much more uh, uh, high volume research than I've ever done. Do you guys have any thoughts on um, <clears throat> what our experience in America is like and what we can do to maybe improve the quality and kind of get back on the stage of practice changing studies? I mean, I'll, I'll go first. Um, yeah, no, my, my, my goal, and I think a lot of us, um, I would say junior investigators in the field, uh, I'll still consider myself junior, you know, we're trying to be like the Marsden, right? Um, <laughs> because we want to write uh, and be participating in trials that actually change the field. And I'll let you know, like Matt alluded to, you know, everything out of the UK and India is changing our practices right now. And we should take a part in changing practice for, you know, and this topic, at least prostate cancer. So I think the goal here is to synergize both the cooperative groups, because we have multiple cooperative groups at the NCI. And it is a competitive landscape in terms of what trials move forward and which trials doesn't, because all of us have the same problem of money, right? So <laughs> you have a limited amount of funds to fund X amount of trials. And a lot of the questions we ask aren't pharmacy or pharma is sort of embedded within that, in that, but not so much the driver of those trials in terms of radiation oncology. Um, so if we're asking fractionation questions or quality of life questions, for lack of a better term, they're a little less sexy than some of the uh, targeted drug therapy questions. So there's not as much funding behind that. So, you know, one step is to obviously get the cooperative groups in harmony uh, to ask subsequent questions with, you know, basically love spread out through the, the cooperative groups. 
then, you know, we happen to be an era, not that this era didn't exist before, but we have a lot of investigators through multiple different institutions. Uh, and I'm not going to name drop any of them here, but I, I think we all know who they are. Um, in terms of willing to collaborate and join in multi-institutional, you know, trials outside of the cooperative groups. So you have these hubs of treating tremendous amount of prostate cancer, and none of us actually care about the credit. We're just looking to get things done and done quickly. So I think uh, that cooperative sense among different institutions is growing and will continue to grow throughout the various, you know, demographics in the United States asking both the quality of life questions, tech questions, which obviously you guys spoke about on your last podcast. And then finally, I think we have a generation of residents that, is, you know, we're, they're trying to get involved on the ground up. Yes, you're not going to be able to write the phase three prostate cancer trial that's going to change things, but you can definitely get involved in the early phase two ones where or even phase ones where they may report out by the end of your residency or definitely, you know, uh, with the phase twos or phase threes that you can get involved in from a, a translational standpoint, because there's so many biomarkers, you know, you know, whether it's tissue biomarkers, blood biomarkers, imaging biomarkers, because uh, I don't want to say prostate cancer was boring 10 years ago, but it got real exciting as of five years ago in terms of what we're trying to learn. And, you know, even though we're quote unquote, you know, experts on the call here, we're learning a lot right now. And, you know, we'll, We'll just say PSMA and how much that is confusing all of us in terms of how to deliver care and change things at this point, let alone the genomic scores and other things we're learning uh, from other biomarkers. So I think um, on a broader level, we're, we're trying to emulate what, uh, you know, uh, Data and the Marsden have done. Uh, and we hope that this continues because, you know, we definitely need to take play, you know, take a part in changing prostate cancer care definitely from a radiation oncology's uh, perspective, but even broader than that uh, by, you know, running trials that impact care and not are incremental in our, in our, in our progress towards there. Do you, do you guys um, think incentivizing the intervention arm would be a good idea in the United States? I, do, I don't know if it'd be a good idea. It's going to be a tough idea. That's for sure. Uh, to Allison's point earlier, um, we, you know, I just saw three patients to enroll on clinical trials and I literally tell them, look, even if you're on the quote unquote placebo arm and we know there's no placebo arm for radiation, you're going to do better because we know through multiple disease sites and entering in a clinical trial just leads to better outcomes. So if you're on the standard arm or the quote unquote experimental arm, you're still going to have a better outcome, especially when we're asking you know, questions of quality of life versus efficacy, because at least they know, you know, okay, this is not going to change my outcome. It may, you know, may have a betterment, same or decrement on my quality of life, you know, incrementally. Uh, but I think that's the bigger pitch that we need to teach our, you know, junior investigators, obviously our residents in terms of how to, you know, not sell a clinical trial, but at least persuade patients that participating doesn't necessarily benefit them, definitely benefit, potentially benefits humanity. Um, but I don't think incentivizing the SBRT arm, um, whatever tech you use, is going to be financially feasible or doable just given the amount of providers we have and the level of negotiation that would be required with the government or private payers. I don't know if Matt, Anna, similarly, you have other thoughts on we, this. We do that some, we do that a little bit by um, adjusting the randomization. So you'll you'll notice some trials. I have no idea if this is a new happening more often or if it's always been happening. 
but trials where uh, you want to incentivize a physician or a patient to enroll, you can randomize two to one to an experimental arm. So that way they have a better chance of randomizing to, to, you know, the experimental treatment. I see that done quite a bit. The only thing I really wanted to add to what's been said is that I think it would be really nice if we had a de-emphasis uh, or, de- you know, decreased emphasis of uh, on just publications, right? And I don't know if that's, if if there's such an emphasis on publications in India or the UK, but my, my that I think that actually drives a lot of issues um, for our trainees. Uh, for, for me, um, I, I spent a lot, I, you know, there are residents in the US that do have access to, um, you know, to being able to participate in clinical trial design and writing, uh, although it is a little bit more rare, I think, it, mainly because you really need a lot of resources to do that well um, during your training. And so there's not a ton of centers that can kind of offer those resources to residents. Um, and then you have junior faculty that want to do it as well. Um, but, you know, I spent my time publishing retrospective studies, modeling studies, which I think were decent studies, but but I didn't really get involved in trials until I became a faculty member. And um, I learned so much during that time of what I like about trials and what I don't like. And I'm now in a job that I really like where my main role is basically enrolling patients to trials. And I may do some quality of life studies, you know, when some we have more infrastructure kind of available in the current place that I am. But um, but really what I love is like kind of being in clinic and rolling patients to trials, whether it's NRG or Alliance or things like that. Um, and so, you know, it took me four years to learn that. And I feel like a lot of our trainees would benefit from being more involved in these things up front so that as they come out of training, not everyone is going to PI a phase three national trial. There's not that many of them in the United States. And, and we, I'm very thankful for those people, but it's something that I'd never want to do. And I think learning that early just would help make a more diverse kind of workforce that would participate and help enroll and get that number up from the 5, 10, 12% of patients, depending on where you look about who enrolls in the clinical trials in the U.S. I don't think you need to be too depressed as well, Simil, because actually, you know, there are some great ideas coming out through the NRG. And also, my when I do talks on SBRT, I normally start with Deborah Freeman and Chris King's five fraction SBRT paper. So you guys kind of invented it and we just took the ball and, and tested it out. Yeah, it's it's not that like we're we're incapable. Like I and if I'm looking at how to treat most cancers, like I still like look back at an RTOG study or an um, ECOG study or a CLGB study. It's just that that's becoming less frequent. Like, as far as my modern approach, it tends to be stuff not from from United States, unless it's something just innovative that's not an RCT or anything like that. God, I got like five hundred other research questions, and I'm not even a research person. But we, get, I want to move on to um, how do you guys treat SBRT and kind of answer it like a oral exam? I guess just simulate simulate the patient and um, what what you guys do. And start with Allison and then Vidang and then Himanshu. And then we'll kind of, I'll kind of ask questions throughout. Okay. I'm nervous now. I feel like I'm in my FRCR again. Um, so um, we, for if we're doing prostate SBRT, we do five fractions. So we have t- two machines that we treat on either Cybernife or the MRLINAC now. Cybernife obviously needs fiducials for preparation um, and the MRLINAC doesn't. For both types, I always do a planning MRI and I th- I'm a big advocate for that. I think you can't see the prostate on a CT. So why do we plan on a CT? That makes no sense to me. Anyway, um, so that's, I think, really important, improving the quality of um, contouring, which is probably the biggest inaccuracy. I'm, I'm fairly sure that's the biggest inaccuracy in what we do. 
Um, and then we give um, 36.25 grey to the PTV, which um, at the moment is still five millimetres and three posteriorly, but for the MR neck, we're going to go down to three millimetres isotropic. Um, and then we give a concomitant boost to this prostate CTV of 40 grey in five fractions. Um, and I treat alternate daily, I think most of the UK does now. Um, and the dose constraints are in pace. It's all open access on the ICR website if you want to look through the, the radiotherapy planning guidelines for how we do SBRT. They're pretty similar to, I think, what you do in the States and other places. Um, and that's about it, I guess. What else do you need to know? <laughs> well, uh, okay, so the fiducials, everybody gets fiducials. For CyberKnife, obviously, you have to have fiducials. For, for CyberKnife, for sure. And, yeah, for Is there Linux? Yeah, so we, we can do it. So in PACE C, before we got the CyberKnife in Sutton, we did do some patients on our normal um, Linux, um, but I have a CyberKnife and an MR Linux, so I, I've, you know, why would he not use that? Absolutely. And um, is there anything you do specific for PrEP, for the simulation for bowel PrEP or rectal PrEP? Yeah, at the moment we use um, micro enemas, so for two days prior to simulation and day of simulation, just to empty the, the tail end of the rectum. So um, I don't know if that is necessary. We just I've got a student at the moment looking at that to see if uh, we could drop the enemas because the patients don't like them, and I don't want to put them through it unless they have to. Um, and then the bladder filling, we aim for a moderately filled bladder because MRLinac is longer. We give them a bit less to drink, but for the CyberKnife, it's 325 mils, about 30, 40 minutes before. Or they go on the bed. And do you do a measurement of the bladder or is it just you drink it and that's it? Um, we don't pre, so we don't do a, a pre scan uh, bladder scan if that's what you're asking. Yeah. So we're on the bed, uh, we, we don't tend to rescan if the bladder's underfilled. We just get them to fill more for their actual treatment. So just to minimize rescans. And do okay. you, you, and then, oh, sorry, ahead. I wanted to jump in. Just, you, do you, you don't do enemas prior to treatment, right? It's just prior to sim. No, we do. At the moment, we do enemas for every treatment day as well. Okay. Yeah. What about spacers? Oh, so spaces. Um, I, I'm not well. So I'm awaiting some more evidence. Man, she's laughing at me. So I'm not totally convinced about the role of spaces personally. So I think the we've had two randomised trials now, both of which shown slightly different things. Um, I, if you look at pace, the pace B data, you know, one point six percent of patients get an RTOG grade two toxicity two years after treatment. You know, you need to insert 100, maybe 200 spaces to save one man a grade two toxicity. That's never going to stack up in the NHS. So um, an SBRT is, is lower risks than 20 fractions or 39. So, yeah, for me, we don't use them. Well, I have a very loud opinion on that. I'm, I'm not going to get into it here, but I'm, I'm on the same page as you, I would say that. Excellent. Madonna, Madonna, what, what about you guys? Uh, so we are pretty low tech in our SBRT, I think. Um, we don't use spacers, we don't use fiducials, um, uh, we don't use vac locks, or uh, it's just a simple knee rest, uh, comfortable patient. Um, uh, uh, and uh, we, uh, 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 and uh, the prep wise, we have a peculiar problem of dehydration. So patients, uh, need to be well hydrated uh, for them to fill their bladder. They come two hours uh, in a train in the morning to the hospital, and then uh, if they're if it's pretty hot and humid, and uh, they drink the 500 ml, and that goes in their body, and nothing comes to the bladder, and then we get an empty bladder. So we ask them to drink a couple of liters of water, a liter at least in the morning, 
Um, bowel wise, uh, we have another peculiar problem of a high fiber diet. So we ask them to reduce their fiber and go more British or American pastas and noodles and uh, the white rice and the stuff, uh, reduce the dals and the, and the rajmas and other uh, uh, stuff. So uh, we try to do that. Uh, it works. We don't use any mas. We don't use any of this. It really works very well. So we've got a little chart, what you can eat, what you cannot eat, reduce the fruit and green vegetables for some time at least. Uh, and very interestingly, uh, this uh, full bladder thing, I think, is it causes anything that causes uh, a bottleneck in our system, we don't like because we have to be very quick. And these full bladders cause some problem. Uh, they have to uh, they have to go to the uh, toilet and then they have to eat, drink and sometimes not full. We have just submitted uh, a phase two trial. Again, one of my students uh, thesis, we are going to treat everybody empty bladder now. OK. Uh, and I, we call it MTRT. So MTRT, and hopefully it will be in publication in two or three years. Uh, we're going to treat 100 patients. Uh, acute toxicity is the primary endpoint. Uh, and we have done a few, and the bladder seems to have a mind of its own. Empties are often fuller than the full. So, so I don't know what the role of a full bladder is when you're just giving three millimeter margin. So uh, we are going to do that even with pelvic RT. Don't be surprised. I think um, having a full bladder and treating the pelvis probably increase the urinary toxicity. And it's not so much about the bowel. The instinct is, oh, empty bladder with pelvis. What about the bowel? I don't think it's going to be a problem with the kind of IMRT that we do. So watch this space. Uh, uh, so that is one thing. Um, the other thing is we do 36.25 alternate day. We also offer patients weekly treatment if they are from Mumbai and they don't mind coming once a week. We know it's 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 a good treatment, probably slightly gentler, but uh, they love it. Those who come from outstation, it's always alternate days. And uh, uh, we tend to fit in two patients in the slot of one. So because it's alternate day, one slot uh, gets... Uh, occupied by two patients. So we do that. I mean, all this kind of optimization to increase the throughput on the machine. Um, we so you were going to say two patients on the bed at once for a second there, Vidang. <laughs> it's the alternate day. So so we get limited uh, quota for our for urology. So we try to, you know, fit and intercalate the two. Uh, so that works. Uh, uh, we don't go beyond 36.25. Uh, we've tried sometimes, uh, we got carried away, and I think it may be anecdotal, but I find more toxicity with more dose. Um, uh, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just what, what uh, maybe, it's, uh, uh, maybe it's not true, but I think the literature also, uh, 40 is more toxic, um, uh, especially urinary toxicity. So we don't go and most of it is we treat high risk. So most of the seminal vesicle is in T3Bs. So there's a lot of volume there. So we don't go beyond that. Um, and we treat the pelvis uh, for a lot of our patients, even with SBRT, uh, 25 and 5. Um, uh, we try to be slightly tighter in our contours than what is uh, given in the uh, in the guidelines. We we are very tight on the pelvis. Uh, probably works well. Uh, what else? So yeah. Do you, how many arcs do you use on a treatment? Two arcs. Two do you arcs. do a CBCT between arcs? Always, always. So the things that we really focus on is good simulation. Uh, 
very very good uh, again we always do an mr but if often it may not be a planning mr patient would have just had a had a diagnostic mr recently and they don't want we don't want them to pay again for it so we often use the diagnostic mr if it's okay there are always issues with CTMR uh, matching. I mean, it, it's a skill that needs to be developed and residents struggle with it. So we have to teach them that first. Uh, contouring, of course, as Alison said, probably the most important thing, MR helps a lot. Um, I'd ask that the image guidance, the second CT, CBC. Image guidance, yes. So the, what we focus on is the delivery of image guidance. It's a physician-led. One of our residents, so we have a module. I think I didn't share it with you when you were here. We've, we've developed an IGRT module. This is probably what the technologists and nurses do uh, at your place, but we we get our residents to do it um, as part of their training. So what are the red flags? When you should go ahead for moderate fractionation? When you should not go ahead for SBRT? What is an okay bladder? What is an okay rectum? So we've got a little module. Maybe we'll publish it also. I think uh, it may be a good idea. And uh, yeah. so so they, they love it when they join the unit. Uh, it's all very clear what is okay, what is not okay. And and so, so our image guidance is uh, very accurate. Um, any full rectum, we take the patient off. It's SBRT. We go ahead if it's moderate fractionation. So that kind of stuff. So we've optimized these things on the machine. Um, yeah. Please publish that to use a to use a abused term. I think is is an unmet need, but for sure, in American training for radiation oncology, uh, review of onboard imaging is definitely something that we don't train as well as we would like to. And I think a lot of people have kind of pointed that out. Um, yes, yeah. I would agree journal, with that too. Red journal, then Allison. <laughs> Can I clarify really quick in the UK? So, are you planning directly on the MRI, or are you fusing to a CT for planning? No, so the standard workflow at the moment is fused to a CT for planning. We're about to move to MR only workflow for our MR Linux. Obviously, that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Uh, Hamancha, how do you do it? Uh, so rule number one: get everyone on trial. Um, so that's how we uh, do SB, uh, you know, practice SBRT here. Uh, whether I'm seeing the patients in Brooklyn or in Manhattan. So uh, luckily, we've been able to develop clinical trials for all the or participate in the energy so this includes post-op um so it's not just uh, uh intact sbrt um so without sort of doubling up on what the dong and allison said differences we do um offer spacer uh to patients and the mr linac i would say and we offer both spacers so it, you know it's not one or the other um and then patients either say yes or no to the spacer 99% say yes. We also offer the MR Linac. Again, 99.9% say yes. So I would say uh, on my practice, uh, mine and my colleague, uh, Ari Marciscano here, um, uh, is spacer with MR Linac SBRT. Um, obviously, we have a five versus two trial um, that we're uh, rapidly enrolling on and looking for uh, more centers to join, including in Allison's neck of the woods. <laughs> and um, uh, I would say, um, again, on the bladder fill, uh, like Allison and um pointed out, we're not going for those maximum torpedo level bladders that, you know, we trained with, right? Comfortable filling. Um, and then uh, on the MR Linac, it does uh, take a little uh, longer to treat compared to like four minutes on a 
uh, standard CT Linux. Um, so uh, that bladder does fill. Uh, to echo uh, Vidong's point on that, uh, yeah, I, I think the more bladders filled, the more sort of the walls extend to our pelvic fields. So you're going to get the in our practice, similar to the five times five hitting sort of that bladder wall. So there's probably some benefit of, um, I don't say completely empty bladder where your you know, bladder is like pancaking around the prostate, but you just want a little lift, right? So uh, I think the empty bladder thing uh, will hopefully be positive because we don't need our, our, our patients to be in abdominal pain because we're uh, having them fill their bladder so much. Um, the other point, so we talked about dose, talked about spacer, talked about MR, Linac, bladder fill comfortable. And yes, um, everything from uh, favorable intermediate risk all the way to high risk node positive disease. Uh, most are on clinical trial, um, including NRG009. Uh, and then we partnered with um, uh, Dan Spratt uh, to run his Asclepius trial, which is adding PARP inhibitors. So those are uh, even more high risk groups. So uh, it's either it's for the most patients, it's five fraction or less here. So uh, node positive disease or um, favorable intermediate risk. And we do uh, incorporate integrated boost, um, borrowing from again, UK, uh, both on trial, uh, as long as you match your um, uh, meet your OAR constraints. So um, that's our practice. And I, I think I touched on everything. I'm not sure if I forgot anything though. So this is a CTV okay. boost, not a, this is a CTV boost, not a, a nodule MRI identified nodule boost. Is that right? No, or, no, no. It's integrated. It's an SIB uh, nodule boost. So 40 no. grade of the prostate with an up to uh, 45 gray integrated boost uh, in five fractions. Okay. Yeah. And no, Vedang had a study trial. doing that as well. Um, <laughs> we are doing that as a study that you mentioned in your podcast. Uh, we are trying to, uh, get in a PSMA PET-based planning workflow instead of a CTMR planning workflow. So we're working on a PSMA PET-based volume and what which SUV on the PSMA PET in intermediate risk corresponds best with the T2 uh, MR uh, uh, volume and then be boosting that. And it's a, it's a work in progress. It's a pilot study of 30 patients. So they are on trial. We don't routinely do it off trial. And similar to Allison, the CT right now is purely for electron density. Everything is MR-based planning uh, on our Linux system. Cool. I, uh, simple country doc here. We do we do CT-based planning, of course, but we do fuse with an MRI. <clears throat> um, simulations, everything. That's, of course, very important. Um, same thing. We do an enema at simula- uh, the night before simulation. Uh, the morning of the simulation uh, and before each treatment. One thing a community doc told me he did and I've copied is to do the simulation at the same time the treatment is going to be. Um, We don't know evidence-wise whether that works or not, but it seems to help uh, reproduce a little bit better. The body seems to have patterns um, in their circadian in nature usually. Uh, No spacer, no fiducials, uh, empty bladder, completely, you know, empty bladder. Um, conceptually, it just makes sense. Like you said, like three millimeter margins, four millimeter margins, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the wall. The wall is the same. When you fill up the bladder, if, if you include more, it's just pee, right? Like it's not more wall. So um, I've, I've done empty bladder as well. And um, CBCT in between arcs. And that's kind of our a little bit lower tech compared to a lot of American places, I think, but I think it gets the job done pretty well. Um, gosh, there was so much in this episode and there's so much more I want to talk about. And I wish I can grab you guys for more time. Um, 
want to finish up with like future directions that you guys predict or have in mind for prostate cancer uh, or in general for red onc. And then uh, we'll finish with our, with the question I prepped you on earlier. So I go first. So um, I hope I don't steal everyone else's ideas having said that, but um, so obviously we've got an interest in testing below two fractions. I think that will be interesting. I think in future, we won't be treating the whole prostate to the same dose. Why would you? you know, we started doing that in the 60s because we couldn't find the prostate, but now we know where the tumour is. So um, so I think it will be heterogeneous dose targeted to either MRI or PET. I have my mind open on that one. We'll see. Um, and then I also think important part for the good risk men is to de-escalate the dose to the normal looking prostate. So we've just opened a, a small pilot study called Destination that will um, target or boost es dose escalate to the MRI defined tumour and de-escalate the rest of the gland with the idea that we can reduce toxicity that way. So those would be my my uh, hopes for the for the next few years. What's the de-escalation dose just out of curiosity? And we're taking it down to 30 and five with no margin, which has proved very controversial. <laughs> wow. On the MR Linux, though, I have to say. All right. So I'll follow up since she led with the MR Linux. So uh, <laughs> a a Alice and I have the same mind, just an uh, ocean apart. <laughs> so we have a similar <laughs> philosophies in terms of similar trials in that sense. Um, so for, for us, it's going to be um, sort of similar trials based in that. Our de-escalation is 32.5 um, uh, to that. We'll see. I doubt we're going to see a difference between the two. I love the zero margin idea. Um, we're still stuck at two millimeters. Uh, but in the post-op setting, that's sort of where we're sort of focusing, um, uh, well, along with the infect setting. But, you know, can we decrease the fractionation in the post-op setting? Um, because, you know, right now I would say... In, uh, in the UK, I would say 20 is sort of the standard. Uh, in the US, it's at least 33 plus. Um, uh, I know Vidang is at 33 solid, <laughs> but I'll let him say that. Um, and so the question is, can we, you know, get further fractionation? Because at the end of the day, you know, we didn't think we could do prostates in five. And it boiled down to some biology, but a lot of physics uh, and treatment planning parameters. Because what we learned from uh, chip, you know, apparently 19 and 20 fractions is different. So there is some biology, uh, but a lot of it has sort of washed out the same where 45 to 28 to 20 to five, we're getting the same control rates and relatively the same toxicity profile. So in the post-op setting, perhaps the same thing is true. If you just hit the target and miss the OARs, you'll get the same benefit. So uh, we'll see how all that shakes out. But um, no, prostate, like I said, it's gotten a lot more interesting, a lot more fun in the past few years. Yeah, for us, uh, we are not ready to go down to two because not that I don't believe it. I just don't think we have the hardware to do it yet. Uh, I'm not convinced about the MR-LENAC. Probably uh, same reason why the Americans not convinced about PSMA PET. You just don't have it. So I don't have it, so I'm not convinced yet. But maybe Himanshu is going to come to India soon and convince me that, look, it's a, it's a good deal. Uh, uh, but I think two fractions is really uh, what will be the standard maybe in 10 years, 15 years. I don't know when uh, we're going to get there. We are going to focus a lot using PSMA PET. That's what we'll be focusing on. That's our strength, uh, particularly in high-risk, node-positive, oligometastatic, using PET as an imaging biomarker to optimize treatment. That's something we're working on. We are working on integrating lutetium PET, lutetium PSMA therapy with, uh, with SBRT. Uh, 
we've got protons now so we will be starting soon and there's a whole lot of uh, discussion obviously prostate only is not something that we'll be trying there uh, it's not uh, uh, something that uh, the our model is not to the the same as uh, the american model for the regarding the finances so we'll be focusing on uh, pelvic treatments on that i think that is something that we'll be doing maybe that will benefit uh what else in post-op setting i think uh well uh, i have a crazy idea but i don't know if it will work or not i think uh, de-escalation in the post-op setting is probably something we should be thinking about i don't know why we give 64 gray uh, every other cancer we give 50 55 gray post-op uh, so Alison, take that up maybe the uk can do that trial uh, we are starting thinking about uh, a study so uh, that's, I think, uh, going to be very And I can join your study. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. yeah. The NRG might be cooking something, though. You know, All it's, right. <laughs> it's, it's interesting how that crept. I mean, that's a whole different discussion. But it crept up when I was a resident to 60-grade ISO center to 70.2 to PTV, which is like a 15-grade, you know, 13, 14-grade difference of just in a decade with no evidence basis. And I don't know, it's kind of interesting how that. So, yeah. So anyway, we know now higher dose doesn't help uh, in salvage. So maybe the lower dose will help uh, toxicity. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. And our final round of question. Uh, after my trip to India, I, 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 I've always loved Indian food, but I've rediscovered it. It is it, in India. It is incredible. Go visit, visit. Uh, Dr. Murthy, visit Tata. It's a great experience. And then make sure he points you out to some of the great restaurants. My favorite Indian dish uh, overall, I would say I'm a biryani guy, preferably mutton, preferably from uh, Southern style, Hyderabad style. Uh, that's that's my celebratory uh, Indian dish of choice. How about you guys? Well, I have a conflict of interest, so I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> Give me two then. Give me two. Biryani for me as well. It's 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 one of the all time classics. For me, it's yeah. it's a, a guy, Allison. No, it's okay. You go. You go. Uh, <laughs> um, no, for me, it, it, it's a north south thing. So you know, I'm, I'm a traditionalist, um, except for when it comes to prostate cancer. Uh, so it's got to be paneer uh, uh, makhani uh, from the north, and it's a, a nice. No one can see my hands on this podcast, but basically a masala dosa about you know a football <laughs> fa- length wide. You and my wife can go eat at a dosa place. She's that's her favorite. Great for me, it would be something with a king prawn in, maybe a king prawn sarg. I don't know if that's like a cultural faux pas because obviously English Indian food might not be actual Indian food. So, um, but yeah, that, that's that would very, be my favorite. That, yeah. That's a very Sutton thing, Alison. <laughs> At the Hawali in Belmont. Do you remember those days? Yeah. <laughs> Is it still there? Yeah, it's still there. Yeah, we haven't been for a while. It's almost its own cuisine, right? English Indian food, I would say. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we invented some whole dishes that were never seen in India. So, uh, yeah, it's not proper Indian food. <laughs> Anna? I'd say um, sag paneer for me and definitely uh, some garlic naan. Oh, absolutely. The breads are just phenomenal. And breads look like when you're there, it's they're always fresh bread. And it's all of you are most welcome. Um, I've invited all of you, not Matt yet. Uh, Alison, last time, I think your sister's wedding was happening. Last time. 
Yes. <laughs> and, uh, hopefully, you'll be here. All of you will be here soon, sometime or the other. And you can all come home and we can have some good Indian food, homemade food. Yeah. Let's not forget Matt. What What's Matt's? I was going to say, I don't feel qualified to answer this question. I was going to go with a sag, sag dish as well. That's typically what I'll order. But I, um, someone once told me sag paneer is not a real Indian dish. Oh, it is. Okay. Well, I like it. That's, yeah. So that's, uh, but anyway, I, I think it's, I think it's good. So. so the difference is, and I know we don't want to get too much off the beaten path. So in America, there's a lot more heavy cream put in the sag versus the India sag is straight cheese and um, the spinach portion. We definitely, uh, as Americans do, increase the fat within the food. They, well, the other is sag is mustard greens, and most Americans just use spinach instead. And pal- pal- oh, wow. I'd actually like that a lot better, I think. Yeah. Sometimes the sag, if you get it, it, it almost is like cream spinach, right? It's like, it's very... Um, a lot of Indian American restaurants use pollock instead, and they call it sag, but yeah. Well, gosh, this has been incredible. I wish we could have this every week. Uh, you guys have so much to teach us, and it's just a fun group. Um, nobody could hear it because it's muted, but uh, there, there's there's a lot of laughter that's being muted. There's there's a slyness to the way people speak in this group that's really fun. Um, but can't wait to hang out in person at some point. With great. Everyone. Thanks very much yeah. for inviting us. Thank you so much. Thanks. This is great. Thank you so much, Simon. Thanks, everybody. It's been great. Yeah, really interesting discussion. Out. Yeah. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a good day. See you soon. Bye.